It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Over the past several episodes, we've been walking through the idea of the storyline of Scripture. We looked at the idea of the kingdom introduced and rejected. We, we moved from there to the kingdom of the people of faith and the people of promise. Last time we were looked at the idea of the kingdom rehearsed where all the laws and all the festivals and the tabernacle and stuff of the Old Testament was a rehearsal bringing us to the point of the Messiah. And we're in this stage now, number four, of the idea of the kingdom in waiting. Now, when you look at the entirety of the Old Testament, I just want to give you a basic timeline. Now, these are not actual dates. These are all approximations. And so if you're a Bible nerd and you're like, uh, excuse me, you're off by a couple of years. I, yes, <laughs> we're doing generalities. But when you look at this idea, there were roughly 400 years in Egypt in slavery, as we talked about last time. There's about 400 years from them coming out of Egypt to the time of the monarchy, starting with King Saul. And then we had the kings of Israel. We had King Saul, eventually was replaced by King David, and then his son, King Solomon. And then after King Solomon, as you well know, that the the kingdom of Israel split in 931 into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was known as Israel under Jeroboam. And then there was the southern kingdom called Judah under Rehoboam, which was Solomon's son. And what's interesting as you follow that trajectory through, Assyria, who was the world empire of the day, comes in 722 and takes the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and basically from that point forward, Israel is no more. Uh, eventually, Assyria falls to the Babylonian Empire, and in 586, Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes basically all of Israel. So the portion that Israel, uh, that that Assyria, Assyria had taken from Israel, as well as conquering Jerusalem, taking the things of the temple, and toting them off into captivity. Uh, we know that they were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, and of course during this time you had you know like the prophets right before this Jeremiah, but then you had Ezekiel. Uh, Daniel is in that time period. And then eventually, because of King Cyrus, they return and they start rebuilding uh, the temple and, and the city of Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah. And then you have this period called the 400 years of silence. What I really just want to hit or kind of focus on in this particular session is this idea of from the time of Exodus, so they've entered into the promised land at the end of the last episode, from that period unto Jesus Christ, we have all these things happening. Uh, there was, it was a time of kings. It was a time of prophets. It was this season of waiting. And throughout this roughly thousand year time period, there is this longing for something more that, that okay, we're rehearsing the king, coming king. We're, we're, hey, we're doing the festivals. We're keeping the laws as best we know how. And yet what, we, what you begin to see is that there's this longing for something more, something greater. I just want to look at a few of these different elements with you. Uh, we have a variety of kings that have come on the scene. And what's interesting is that, yes, there are a few good kings like David. What you begin to notice is that most of the kings have a tragic downfall, even including David. And the key problem that the kings are having is this idea of disobedience, which goes back to the idea of a lack of faith. These kings are revealing that a human king really is insufficient and unable to be everything a king really ought to be. That there really is one king. And though God said, okay, you are asking for a king, fine, I'll give you a king because you're asking for him during the time of Samuel, which was the coming of King Saul. The reality is, is that Israel was meant to have one king. 
that though they were a monarchy by the time of King Saul, they were really created to be a a theocracy, which is the idea that God is their king. So you have these kings, and again, they're doing their own thing. They become selfish. They, they, they're they self-focused, you know, and, and, and wrapped up in themselves and their issues and their desires and all this kind of stuff. And as such, they begin to disobey the law of the Lord. During this time period as well, you have the time of the prophets. Now, there's about a thousand years or so of prophetic utterance. And yes, there are prophets. Technically, Moses was considered a prophet. But you really have the time of the prophets starting with Samuel. Now, scripture, we have 16 prophets that wrote a particular book of the Bible, a part of the Old Testament, but we know that there's a lot of prophets during this time period. For example, there was Samuel and Elijah and Elisha, and though they didn't write scripture, we know that they were prophets. Samuel technically is what we would consider the, <clears throat> the end of the time of Judges and the start of the prophets. And a lot of that is just because of the fact that Samuel was the mouthpiece between God and the kings. And what you begin to see is as you work through this time of the kings and these the season of the prophets, which by the way, they, they all overlap. So the kings and the prophets, they're all just kind of like interwoven together. The prophets are giving these constant utterances of, hey, return to the Lord. This is what God says. Now, just to highlight a few of the prophets, because they're so fascinating in this time period, what we realize is that there's not one type of prophet. In fact, when you look at the prophets, there's a whole bunch of variety of the kinds of people. For example, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were priests. Daniel was a governmental employee. Amos was a fig tree farmer and a shepherd. Micah, we don't really know, but he comes comes from an agricultural town, so likely was involved in that at some level. Uh, Zephaniah was a member of the royal family. He was a great-great-grandson of the godly king Hezekiah. There's all these different backgrounds of the prophets. Uh, Samuel had started a school called the School of the Prophets. And yet it's interesting, we have no record of God choosing one of the prophets mentioned in the Old Testament from the School of the Prophets. So even though apparently people went trained, you know, they went to a school and was trained to be a prophet, God said, hey, I'm choosing this person to be a prophet. I'm choosing this person. And there was no constancy of the kind of people God would choose. It was just the people who had a willing heart, those who were walking in faith and righteousness. Again, we have 16 authors who wrote prophetic books, and technically there's 17 books, 16 authors, and just, and my guess is you probably know this, but for those who may not, we have two sections of prophets that we typically call in our Bible. We have what we call the major prophets, which is books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, he also wrote Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and then we have the minor prophets. And for clarity's sake, we call the major and minor prophets not out of importance. In other words, the major prophets are not majorly important, and the minor prophets minorly important, seemingly important. That's that's not how it's structured. It's actually a literary term talking about the length of the books. For the most part, the major prophets are the ones that have the longer books, and the minor prophets have the shorter books. The writer of Hebrews says this, in terms of the prophets, God was leveraging the prophets in a variety of ways, but but listen to what Hebrews 1.1 says about the prophets. The writer says, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says, look, God spoke to us before by the prophets. He spoke in a variety of ways and in a variety of, of, of methods. But now the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, he is speaking to us through Jesus Christ. But as you go back in the Old Testament, 
Again, God is using a variety of prophets. There's not one single type of prophet, but he also is using a variety of means of speaking through those prophets. Uh, one way that he did that is the written word. In other words, God was using poetry. And by the way, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme like typical English poetry does. But th there was written prophecy. Uh, there was speech. In other words, there was oracles or prophetic announcements that the prophets would give. And perhaps my favorite is the drama. In other words, God would use a prophet's life and act out a message. Uh, in English, we say that a picture is worth a thousand words. It's like that idea that God would take a prophet and say, I want you to do this. For example, Hosea would be a good example. Here's this man by the name of Hosea. God says, I want you to marry a prostitute. And Hosea's like, excuse me, uh, I'm a good godly Jewish man. I, I don't hang out with prostitutes. And God says, yeah, but I'm asking you to do this because it becomes a witness of a greater reality. And when the world sees the drama that's being played out of you marrying a prostitute, then they will see the prophetic utterance that I want given. Let me give you a couple other ones that I think are just fun. Uh, Isaiah, uh, act, he not only wrote a lot of prophecy, spoke a lot of prophecy, he acted out a lot of prophecy. Uh, one time he walked around naked for three years, which you have to admit was awkward. <laughs> in other words, it wasn't like he was walking around in his boxer shorts. He was walking around naked. And uh, my guess is it was probably scary at first. And then by the end of three years, everyone's just like, yeah, it's, I it's Isaiah. But when you look at this, Isaiah's announcement through this was that Isaiah should trust God rather than their ally, Egypt, during the Assyrian conflict. And when you look at this idea, why was he naked? It's this idea that Assyria was soon going to conquer Egypt and then carry them away as naked captives. And so, <laughs> strangely, God says, Isaiah, I want you to dramatize that. Uh, that's awkward. Uh, Jeremiah had a little bit easier. In one drama, he went to a potter shop and used it as an illustration that God was going to crumble Israel and start over just like a potter does with clay. And if you want a far more awkward one, you could read the story of Ezekiel in the first few chapters of Ezekiel. Um, but for the sake of propriety and time, I will just skip over Ezekiel. But God would use the prophets, yes, through spoken word, yes, through written word, but also in the drama of their lives to declare the word of the Lord. And there really was two ways that God would do that. One is this idea of foretelling. In other words, like foretelling the future, things that are to come. And the idea is forthtelling, telling truth or instruction for the right now. So again, this idea of foretelling, it's interesting that only about a third of the messages of the prophets were actually predictive in nature. This is to come. In other words, I hear prophetic books and I'm like, oh, so it's all things that are about to come. Yeah, kind of. But the prophetic announcements or the utterances of the prophets, only about a third was prophetic. So what was going on in all these books that we call the prophets? Well, let me give you three quick ideas. Number one, throughout the prophets, you see this pro proclaiming of the coming Messiah. Again, it's this season of waiting that the Messiah is coming. This Messiah is coming. And so you have these prophetic announcements of the coming Messiah. And I've listed a bunch on our screen, but for example, in Daniel Daniel predicted the exact day that Christ would come into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. It's so profound. And the very day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem is the very day that Daniel predicted. Uh, Zechariah said that he would come into Jerusalem on that triumphant entry, riding on a colt of a donkey. Isaiah predicted that Messiah would be born of a, uh, of a virgin. Micah declared that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Hosea wrote that he would be called out from Egypt. 
Zacharias said that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver and the money would be used to buy the potter's field. Isaiah wrote that he would be numbered with the criminals and David predicted that his hands and his feet would be pierced and that his clothes would be divided. There are hundreds of prophecies throughout the Old Testament talking about the coming of the Messiah. And it is so amazing to realize that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled every single prophecy for his first coming, which means that he will fulfill every single prophecy for his second coming. In other words, he is not going to violate his word. So one of the ways that the prophets would uh, speak is this idea that they would give hints or these ideas of the future Messiah that is to come. Another way that the prophets would speak or write is that they would predict world events. It's what we typically think of prophecy. So about 2% of this prediction dealt specifically with the Messiah. And there is some overlap in all this. Uh, 1% was about the end times or what the end is going to have. And about 90% from what one scholar said had to do with their immediate future. Now, we do know that there is a lot of overlap. In other words, things that was happening in their immediate time frame becomes a like a double prophecy for the coming of Jesus. But regardless, there is some predictive things, but that's not the most or that that's not the bulk of what's happening in the prophets. Again, about a third was that predictive nature. There is this whole element of foretelling. It's this calling back and speaking truth of what God is saying to his people. Uh, one of the big themes that they were doing was preaching repentance. So when you look at the prophets, they were all often talking about turning from your sin and following God. Uh, they were reminding people of God's laws, that, that biblical standard for right and wrong. They were warning listeners of God's blessings and curses, and they kept saying, hey, turn from your wicked ways and turn to God. Well, I love that word in Hebrew for turn or to repent. It's used nearly over, or it's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament, but it's that word shuv in Hebrew, often translated turn, repent, uh, return. And let me just give you a few passages where this shows up. I, I love these. Joel 2.13 says, And tear your heart and not your garments. Now, shuv, to return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting concerning evil. Ezekiel says, shuv and shuv. <laughs> he just uses this all the time. He says, turn back, repent, repent from all of your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. In chapter 33, he says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would return, that they would shuv from his way and live. So turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Repent is what he kept saying. So again, get the heart of the prophets. God spoke to the mouth of the prophets and he used a variety of different means, spoken and written and, and drama. And he was speaking a variety of messages. He was talking about the coming of the Messiah. He was talking about the predictive reality of what was happening in their day. But one of the main things that the prophets would, would talk about is the fact that, look, God has called you to faithfulness. God has called you unto purity. God has called you unto holiness and repentance. So therefore, come out from the world, repent of your wicked ways, throw off those idols and return to the Lord. It's interesting that you start seeing that as a major theme, that just as God called Abraham to come out from the world, he called the people of Israel to come out from their idols and the world, just like he calls us to come out from the world and to embrace the full reality of Jesus Christ. Again, there's this idea that throughout 
the Old Testament, the kingdom was being prophesied, that there was this longing in this waiting season for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, Let me just give you a few passages of this, but I, I want you to hear the groan of the prophets. Several times throughout the Old Testament, the, the prophets had this, this glimpse of what was to come. They, they saw the full reality of Christ and his accomplishment on the cross and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And they said, oh, there, there's coming a day. There's coming a day. Oh, there's coming a day. Could you imagine that anticipation? That they look back and they see the movement of God through the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They, they saw what God did through the Exodus and bringing them, bringing them into the promised land but they're looking around saying, but there, there has to be something more than what we're experiencing. Yeah, God's doing neat things, but man, we have all these horrible kings and man, God, God is just, we're living in idolatry and God's calling us back to repentance. There, there has to be a means of salvation from all of this. There has to be hope. And again, in this waiting period, there was this kingdom prophecy, this longing for the fullness of Jesus, the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Here's what Jeremiah said about all this. He said in Jeremiah 31, but this is a covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them. Listen to this. And on their heart, I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, no, Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God says, look, I, I'm going to literally write this upon your hearts. Everyone is going to know me intimately. There, there's going to be a richness of fellowship with me. There's coming a day. Just, just keep waiting. Uh, this is what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel writes, and I will give them one heart. This is speaking of the Lord. I will give them one heart and give within them a new spirit. I will take their heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. They will be my people and I shall be their God. He goes on and says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to do my judgments. There was this longing of saying, hey, there's coming a day. There is hope. Just, 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 just stay tight, folks. There's coming a day when, when what God has been writing on tablets of stone, he's going to imprint upon our hearts. He's speaking about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. That the, the, the fullness of Christ is coming and, and there, there's, there's the longing, all the hope, all the waiting time period will be worth it. Just, just, just stay with me. So we have this time period called the kingdom in waiting. And you start to look through this idea of, okay, God established a kingdom, but they rejected it. God chooses a person who, who's walking by faith and he gives them a promise. And then he has all of Israel start to rehearse all of these things, the law and the festivals and using the tabernacle so that when Jesus would show up on the scene, they would clearly see him. But we're in that season of waiting for about this thousand years from, from the time of the monarchy, the time of King Saul and David down, down through Jesus, there, there's this thousand year period of just waiting and longing and okay, when, when is it going to come? And, and when is it going to come? And all right, we're rehearsing, we're waiting, when, when, when? And right at the very end of that, at the last 400 years of that time period, right before Jesus, there's this thing that a lot of scholars have called the 400 years of silence. 
In this midst of the kingdom of waiting, there's these silent years. In other words, uh, you come to the end of the of the Old Testament, you have, you know, like Ezra and Nehemiah coming and they rebuild Jerusalem. They reestablish the temple and 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 all the 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 sacrifices. Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the wall and you have the last prophetic utterances like in Malachi. And you get to the end of the Old Testament in a chronological sense and and there's just this waiting period. And from the end of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, that the very end of the chronologically the Old Testament, and the beginning of the Gospels with John the Baptist, you have this 400-year period. And I know why we call it the 400 years of silence. It's because there was, there was no prophetic voice. There was no, thus saith the Lord, like there had been the previous thousand. And yet, it really was anything but silent. And when you look at those, those 400 years of waiting, you really see that it was really loud. And just as a way to even wrap up this episode, I want to give you four key things that happened in those years of quote-unquote silence that actually set the stage for the coming Messiah. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about the coming of the king himself, Jesus. I'm so excited. But what I want to do with this episode is to realize that in the season of waiting, they're rehearsing things. You you have this whole uh, king, you know, establishment with, with the lineage of the kings and the split of the kingdoms, and you have a prophetic voice. And it seems like everything just goes quiet for 400 years. It's like the the quiet before the rushing wind. But there's four key things that God leverages this season for that really set the scene for the coming Messiah. So here they are. Number one is what I'm calling the conqueror, speaking of Alexander the Great. During this time period, right around the 333 BC time period, Alexander the Great takes over the known world. So we had the Assyrian Empire, we had the Babylonian Empire, you know, we had the Medes and the Persian Empire. But Alexander, as a young man, comes and takes over the kingdom of Greece and just starts conquering the world. Alexander, as the conqueror, takes over the known world. And one of the things that he does in around the 300 BC time period is that he, he what we call, Hellenizes the world. In other words, he brings the Greek culture, but specifically the Greek language, to the world. Greek became the dominant language of the world. Uh, almost like in today's world, English is kind of the business language. If you're going to do business, you pretty much need to know English. Back in the early days, a few hundred years before Jesus, it was Greek. Everyone would speak Greek if you're in business. Now, I don't know how, if you can see this, that is so brilliant of God. In other words, he's setting the scene for the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is about to come on the scene. He's going to really pass it off to the 12 disciples, and they're going to go out into all the world and proclaim the good news. But they're Jews in a little tiny land of Israel. How's the world going to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Unless the world had one primary language, which was Greek. And so because of the Hellenization of the world by Alexander the Great, God established a foundation of language so that all the world could hear the gospel through uh, through the early church. That is brilliant to me. That is, that is such a providence of God setting the scene for the coming of Christ. Number two is what I'm calling the defenders, which is the Maccabees, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but in that time period, the Maccabees come and they bring about a restoration of the temple and, and the festivals and that's where we get the, the celebration of Hanukkah. But it's also in that 400 years that we have the rise of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees were, were from the rich upper class. Uh, they were basically politicians that were ruling the land of Israel. The Pharisees were usually a lower class or most of them were in, impoverished. 
but they were holding tight to the authority of the law. Uh, they created their oral traditions and, and they created the establishment of that Pharise Pharisee mindset of the law. Now, Jesus rebukes them, but there was something good about that because they were trying to the best of human ability to obey the law, which we know that's actually impossible. But you, you see this restoration of purity. You see this restoration of Jewish the, the Jewish heart and focus on God in this 400 time period through the Maccabees, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. You, you see them as like a ruling class by the time of Jesus. A third key piece in this whole thing that sets the scene is what I'm calling the megalomaniac, speaking of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was a huge narcissist, and everything had to be the bigger, the better, the best. Uh, everything just had to be grand and glorious. And Herod the Great was incredibly, incredibly wicked, and yet he was amazingly brilliant. Uh, if you ever go to Israel today, a lot of the things you actually get to see are things that Herod did or invented or built he really was a brilliant economist and engineer. And I love the fact that even though he's incredibly wicked and he's not a good character at all, God takes this man called Herod the Great and lays a foundation right up to the time of Christ to set the scene in a desperate waiting for the Messiah. In other words, it's almost like King Herod made the waiting of the Messiah all the more desperate because of just he was so evil and so wicked and brilliant all at the same time. And he's a key piece of understanding a lot of what's happening in the Gospels. And so I'd encourage you at some point, maybe even go study him out a little bit more. He's really, really fascinating, uh, especially in the setup of the Gospel accounts. Then you have the final character I want to just mention really briefly, and I'm calling him the announcer. It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist really is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man that the Old Testament produced. And you realize that John the Baptist was the first pro, uh, prophetic pro, pro, proclamation voice since the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi. So John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's this voice in the wilderness crying forth, make way of, or make straight the path of the Lord. He's crying out the fact that the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here, all that waiting time period that we've been waiting for, all that rehearsal stuff, the king has finally come. And in the next episode, we're actually going to talk about the coming of that king, Jesus Christ. All of this of the Old Testament has been building up to this point. Again, everything in the Old Testament flows to the grand reality of Jesus and the cross in the storyline of Scripture. So when you come to the Old Testament, don't miss this. Everything going on in the Old Testament was preparation. It was a foreshadow. It was a declaration of pointing us to Jesus and the fulfillment of what he did upon that cross. Again, if you'd like to take this idea deeper, I've been in conjunction with the Daily Thunder series. I've been going through my own podcast, giving a Christophany or glimpses of Jesus in this section of scripture. And so what I did in this week's episode is I've, I've looked at some of my favorite Christophanies in this time period of just the waiting season. So if you'd like to learn more about just seeing Jesus in this section of scripture, I'd encourage you to go listen to that. I'll put a link for that in the description, the show notes below. Can I encourage you? We're, we're in that season of the year where there's this longing for the king. And can I encourage you just as the Old Testament was waiting and anticipating and longing for the coming of the king, can I encourage you to do the same? Not, not just for Christmas, but do you realize that the king is coming back? And just as there was a longing and an anticipation in the Old Testament for the first coming, 
What if we lived all the time in preparation and anticipation and longing of saying, oh, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. That's my desire for you. God's blessings. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.